0: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Duke Football Coverage podcast brought to you as always by Bull City Coordinators. Please check us out at our website, bullcitycoordinators.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Coverage. We are everywhere that you get your podcasts, Apple, Google, Spotify, Anchor, etc., and so forth. You know my DMs are open. You know the other forums I'm on, Reddit, uh, the Duke Basketball Report forums, You know how to find me. So we are going to get right into this interview with our next guest who played football at Duke uh, from 2008 until 2011. If I left the season off, I will get corrected quickly. He played tight end for the Blue Devils. He is from Canada originally and now is an economics expert. And fun fact, uh, the reason that I reached out to have him on is because my wife, who keeps up on economic trends, found him on Twitter and said, you have got to get George on the podcast. So that has come forth. Uh, Mrs. Bull city coordinators. If you're, if you are listening, I have completed yet another item on the honeydew list. So that should count for something. George Perks, how are you doing, sir?
1: I'm good, Ben. It sounds like we share a a similar quality and that we both have a much, much better half. (laughs)
0: well when uh when i interviewed john latina and i agree with you i I have a i have a much better half but when i interviewed john latina he mentioned how important wives were and he kept talking about how important wives were and i said i need to stop this because my wife listens to this podcast so i gotta (laughs) tone tone some of this stuff down uh but You mentioned uh, before we got on, went on the record, you're in Charlotte now. Why don't you take a a few moments, catch everybody up with what you're doing these days? So I am the global macro strategist for
1: Bespoke Investment Group. Uh, What that means in English is I uh, do research on economic and financial market trends around the world. Uh, with an eye to helping investors understand what's going on in markets and and position themselves accordingly. Uh, We are a small uh, independent research firm uh, about six or seven folks now, um, and we also manage portfolios uh, for folks as well uh, through a, a separate business line. Uh, I've been with Bespoke since about 2014. I've been living in North Carolina since 2016. Uh, we moved down here uh, when my wife uh, went off to law school at Wake Forest. Uh, we had met in New York. I've been there for about four years and. That big city life was uh, was about enough for me, so <laughs> we moved to Winston Salem, and uh, we've been in North Carolina since then, and
0: it's just great. When did she finish up law school? I'm a lawyer, so I'm gonna I'm gonna dovetail this for a little bit into something that I'm selfishly interested in. So she uh,
1: finished up in the fall of 2018, uh, and then did an externship to finish off her time. Graduated in 2019, so we've been in
0: Charlotte since you know first week of 2019. And what kind of law is she practicing?
1: My wife, Raquel, is a commercial litigator, um, business fights, basically, uh, does all kinds of stuff related to contracts and disputes uh, for a firm here in Charlotte called Moran and Manala.
0: Well, that's fantastic. Commercial disputes are a lot like domestic disputes. So it can be uh, fun uh, and profitable, but also kind of a pain in the neck. So Good luck with that. Yeah. Yeah. Slightly lower stakes in,
1: in some in some respects, I think. Um typically the commercial litigants don't have a history of violence with one another, but beyond that
0: <laughs> Well, you know, the, the domestic work when you're when you're splitting up a marriage and you know, kids and dividing up the custody, it becomes sometimes a lot more about the airing of grievances with your spouse than about we just need to make a deal and get this done. Right. So, and, and the firm I used to work at used to do a lot of business litigation and there was a lot of that. Yep. For
1: sure. My dad was an attorney also, or is an attorney also. And uh, he, uh, his practice, he described as fights, no blood, no kids. So uh, I I think the intensity of the disputes there can definitely uh, be not so great for the attorney on either side of a fight like that.
0: Well, uh, it's like I'm back at work. Okay. Uh, tell us, you mentioned helping investors understand markets, and I actually want to talk to you a little bit about that. I have a history degree. So I could tell you a lot about how there used to be these quaint terms called panics every 20 or so years in the late 1800s. And I could tell you, well, the market crashed in you know, the 1920s. But explaining why we had like stagflation in the seventies. I can't do that. And I'm just curious how you got into understanding markets, how you got into economics.
1: Um, so at, when I was at Duke, my undergrad major was actually public policy studies. Um, and um, I minored in econ, but my major was public policy. And the reason I liked public policy is because it was a, uh, cohesive framework for understanding the world that was multidisciplinary. So, you know, like you said, um, understanding history and having um, the depth of what's happened before is really important for understanding what's happening now. I mean, that's true beyond economics or markets. I mean, that, that's just a general thing, right? Um, you're never going to be able to tell where you're going if you don't have at least a cursory understanding of where you've been. Um, I do think that, um, the, the, I guess, dynamism of markets is, is probably the thing that attracted me to the most. There's always something going on, right? It's never boring. It's never, um, fully repetitive. It's, it, there's always something new to learn. There's always someone new to talk to. And, um, that really is that for someone who's intellectually curious and who is, um, you know, wanting to constantly be stimulated in what they're doing, it's hard to find a better place for that than markets. Um, Especially if you've got a broad mandate to talk and learn and discuss and explain a lot of different things um, as I'm lucky enough to have myself. So
0: um, yeah. So tell us where we could go to be better consumers of that information. And if we want to learn about that ourselves, what resources should we seek out?
1: Well, you can follow me on Twitter (laughs) at P-E-A-R-K-E-S at Perks on Twitter. Um, My firm, Bespoke Investment Group, um, also um, sells research, has free public research available. Um, Our website's um, bespokepremium.com, B-E-S-P-O-K-E premium.com and at Bespoke Invest on Twitter. There's a ton of really good stuff um, in the podcast world. Um, If you are sort of interested and want to get you know, what's the hot topic right now and and have it explained to you in pretty understandable terms. I love Odd Lots, which is hosted. It's a Bloomberg podcast hosted by my friend, Joe Wiesenthal and um, another friend, Tracy Alloway. And they do a great job of sort of breaking down the latest thing that's going on. The most recent guest was an oil hedge fund, um, commodities hedge fund, but oil focused um, trader who walked through some of what's gone on over the past couple of months with oil prices, um, helping, you know, sort of frame out why gas prices are so high why you know wti the benchmark for crude oil went from 100 bucks to 120 bucks and then back to 100 bucks and you know it um i think it, it's just there's there's tons of sources like that but those are those are a couple you can start with
0: all right stay on that why are gas prices so high
1: um well the simple answer is that uh Basically, people got tired of funding um, money losing businesses trying to find crude oil. Um, so if we go back um, to 2007, 2008, uh, emerging markets had grown a lot. There were a whole bunch of new consumers of commodities in the world. And that eventually led to this sort of parabolic move in oil prices. Um, lots of financial speculation as well was involved in that um, crude hit $145 a barrel almost just short of $145 a barrel. And then we had this global financial crisis where consumer demand disappeared and suddenly nobody wanted to, you know, no one could afford to drive their cars anymore. Less commuting, a lot of people lost their jobs, just overall big drop in oil demand. Oil crashed down into, I think, low 30s is where it bottomed out. Economic growth rebounded afterwards somewhat, and oil went back to hundred dollars. But then, because oil was expensive historically, there was this big incentive for creativity and for um, for new technologies to um, sort of explore for oil and extract oil. And what we call this today is tight oil or the shale patch, or um, basically all the crude that's produced in Texas um, these days. It's also um, North Dakota, um, a few other places in the U.S. produce as well. Um, so that, that process meant there was this massive surge in U S crude production. The U S is the largest producer of crude oil in the world. Um, which I think a lot of people don't know. And we actually have a a balanced petroleum trade balance. So before in 2007, 2008, if we were, you know, if you're putting gas in your car, probably that gas came from somewhere else, ultimately, um, on a net basis. Now it comes from the U S on a net basis. So, um, you know. So one of the consequences of the shale revolution is that you had a whole bunch of smaller companies all able to start drilling and, you know, put a bunch of wells in really quickly. Um, it, it's a feature of the technology, very different from going out and building a drilling rig that has to, you know, go down to the seafloor in 10,000 feet of water and then, drill another mile underneath that to get at the reserves. Now, shale's really fast. You can spin it up and spin it down in less than a year. And so, you know, this new technology um, can spin up and spin down real fast. Oil prices are high. So a bunch of capital plows into that sector. Um, And about 2014, enough of it had, there was enough production that crude oil prices around the world crashed, um, went from about $110 a barrel to uh, got as low as the 20s at the in the, in 2015 2016, um, and so then all the prices were low for a long time. And every time oil prices ticked up, um, you had a bunch of people pile in. Um, and through all this, all the people that were pumping this crude oil in the shale patch were losing tons of money. Um, they were basically um, they were taking investor capital, debt, equity, p- putting a bunch of rigs out in the field, drilling a bunch of wells, and those wells didn't produce enough cash flow to cover the expenses ultimately, right? I mean, the end of the day. Um, So fast forward to now, and oil prices have obviously gone up a lot, but all these companies are now saying, not all of them, but most of them are saying, we don't want to do this again, because we've been told by our shareholders, you are not allowed to drill more than what's exactly profitable right now. You cannot go crazy with production. And so as a result, that swing producer in in the global oil markets is now not producing as much crude as it needs to, to keep prices below $100 a barrel. The last thing I would say is that that pop from 100 to 120, which is now reversed and will probably go back the other direction again, back up to 120 or something like that. Um, That pop was because Russia, which is the third largest producer, fourth largest producer in the world, um, got taken offline uh, by essentially by uh, its decision to invade Ukraine. Um, Combination of sanctions, individual companies making decisions, Issues with insuring cargoes when they put oil on a ship to take it out of Russia. Um, Consumers not wanting to buy from them. Um, So that's taken, you know, roughly 10 percent of global oil production out of the market or in large part out of the market. And so when supply goes down, prices go up. And that's 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 the story now.
0: All right. And and that's a great explanation. We're going to come back to issues with Russia because I want to get your I want to get your thoughts on that uh, as we go forward here. But one thing, I'm gonna stay a little out of order here. But one thing that Mrs. Bull City coordinators wanted me to ask you is whether we should be concerned about inflation at this and Why or why not?
1: Yeah, so inflation right now um, is high is very high compared to um, if you'll permit me a little bit of a historical digression again. No, <laughs> you no, mentioned no, stagflation on, yeah. earlier. So stagflation is this um, process where inflation stays high, even though unemployment's rising and GDP's, you know, falling or growing very slowly. Um, so that was what happened in the 1970s. There's a bunch of reasons for it, but bottom line, inflation was high. And we didn't see that dealt with and, and start to come down until a series of recessions in the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s, where the Fed just said, the Federal Reserve just said, we're going to raise interest rates so high that inflation can't stay high because we're going to hit growth too hard. Um, and we're going to create a much higher cost of capital to supply um, the economy with the capital it needs to incentivize people to save, to incentivize, incentivize people not to spend. Really, really high interest rates. Obviously, that's super bad for the GDP is super bad for, um, for employment. Um, so, you know, uh, Fed chair Volcker at the time had people had construction workers sending him two by fours with uh, messages written on them in blood. I mean, it was that bad, right. Cause mortgage rates were 25%, you know, 18, 19, 20, 25%. And you couldn't, it, the economy just choked on those high interest rates. Eventually though, they got rid of high inflation, um, and so then inflation ran very, you know, on a progressively weakening trend from the early 1980s through um, about 2019, uh, 2020. That brings us to COVID. Uh, so the, the policy response in the US to COVID was for the Federal Reserve to be very aggressive, expanding its balance sheet, um, cut interest rates to zero, pledged to keep interest rates at zero until um, they had. Seen very strong employment and or high inflation, um, and also there was a bunch of fiscal policy too, uh, cash transfers, um, all sorts of um, support for businesses, for households, um, in a bunch of different forms. Um, so what that did is it is it kept incomes really high, even though even though a lot of people lost their jobs, um, even though aggregate demand was relatively weak, um, and so. The other thing it did is because of the pandemic and all this loose cash people had, it allowed them to spend a lot on durable goods. So, you know, stuff that you buy for your house or a car or, um, you know, that sort of thing that before the pandemic, maybe you don't care that much if you need a new couch or not, because you're not in your house that much anyways, you're going out to meet your friends at bars and so on and so forth. You work at the office. Well, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of people want to upgrade their homes. A lot of people want to, you know, buy you know, I, I I picked up an Air Force One habit during the pandemic because might as well have nice shoes. There's not much going on. Um, and so, yeah, there, there's this like swing in consumption where a bunch of people want to buy durable goods all at the same time. So that's created a bunch of supply chain issues, too much demand going through channels that aren't used to seeing big changes in demand really quickly it's rippled through semiconductors, industries, ports, um, basic fasteners, um, all sorts of industrial inputs. And really what it comes down to is this huge sort of student body left move, um, you know, overload, right. Uh, if you're, if you're talking about, um, about a football play, it's, you know, that guard's pulling and it's, you know, he's coming downhill into the hole, right. And you do not want to be the linebacker matched up on him. <laughs> and so, you know, um, that has created a lot of issues to the global economy both in the US and around the world um, covid shutting down production in different places has impacted it as well and meanwhile labor markets are really strong um, you know demand is high for labor wages are strong and so you've sort of got this perfect storm of stuff that is idiosyncratic and reasonably confident we can say that it will eventually work itself out um you know that's the supply chain stuff that's the component shortages, that's, you know, the stuff that just isn't working as well because demand swung around so much. Um, And then there's the stuff that's more persistent. So for instance, um, wages for services jobs have gone up a lot and are, and are, and are pretty high right now. Um, So if wages are high and businesses have to raise prices and workers have a lot of bargaining power, then they can go out and say, well, prices just went up. So now I need a raise. And then, if the cycle continues, um, there's not really good evidence we're in that cycle yet, but that's sort of the risk, um, of being in a high inflation environment is people thinking that that inflation is going to continue and changing expectations based on it. So, um, you know, I, I think inflation, right. Inflation is a problem right now. Um, how your policy response to that inflation is going to depend on how, on what kind of problem you think it is specifically. I fall in a camp where, my view is that we're going to re- return back. You know, we're going to, we're going to see a, a mean reversion in inflation. We're not going to have 7% CPI for a long periods of time um, just because things will sort themselves out. Um, on the other hand, you've got people who think need to hike interest rates, you know, 1% in, in the next two months, basically, um, or three months. Um, and, you know, In my opinion, that's kind of asking for a recession. So the Federal Reserve has a tough job right now trying to figure out how much to pump on the brakes, whether it's going to be enough, you know, just enough or too much and send us into recession.
0: So to kind of dumb it down a little bit, unless you get the economic contraction and the job stagnation that we saw in the 70s, the inflation in and of itself may not be a problem.
1: Yeah. High inflation is, so the actual experience of inflation is regressive. So people um, at the low end of the income spectrum feel it worse. So any any high inflation, whether it, you know, if, if inflation is 7% versus 2%, all else equal, 7% is not where you want to be. Um, that said, right, if inflation is, if, if you're, if inflation is 7%, but your wages are going up by 8%, then maybe you're not actually worse off, right? Like maybe that maybe you're actually okay. You might feel pretty bad about it. And that's what consumers are saying right now that they feel really bad about the economy, even though we've got strong growth, high employment, high wages. They're more worried about the price of groceries and gas going up. And so, yeah, inflation is not good. Um, the question is where, what is the source of that inflation? If that, if that inflation is only going to be around for a bit and you've got a high confidence that it's going to go back down, then, um, you know, using the government, whether it's fiscal policy, raising taxes or cutting spending, um, or monetary policy, raising interest rates, um, if you do that to slow the economy, when, the inflation was going to ebb anyways, you're, you're creating a risk of, of creating a recession for no reason that you didn't need to do. Now, the the flip side of it is what we got in the 1970s, where everybody had, you know, inflation was going up and up and up. And everyone thought, okay, prices are going to keep going up. So I need to adjust my behavior. And that adjustment in behavior creates more inflation and it just keeps going. And so what, you know, the, that is when you, the central bank really has to step in and, and cut off, cut things off um, if, you know, they don't want a sustained, you know, continuing, continuing, continuing path of inflation. Um, the last thing I'd say about inflation is that, you know, high inflation is, or, or any amount of inflation is a social choice we all make, right? Um, whether it's through, I mean, primarily it's attenuated, but primarily the way we make that choice is through who we send to Congress and the White House. Um, And, you know, if you if you don't want a lot of people to lose their jobs, then you shouldn't you can't complain too loud about inflation. You know, if you are really worried about making sure that everyone who wants one has a job, then you're going to have to tolerate a little bit more inflation. And so I think that sort of trade off is kind of lost on a lot of people. And I know I know this audience of this podcast, I'm probably so far over folks heads here and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I, I'm just kind of going here. But um, but I would just, you know, for lay people, I would just stress like higher inflation isn't all bad. And, um, you know, it, it's painful, but it depends on what else is going on. And right now, there's a lot of good stuff going on that stopping inflation, you know, working to, to stamp it down really fast will stamp down that other good stuff, too. So,
0: yeah. OK, I got, I got what you're saying. Let me I want to stay on this because you mentioned the supply chain issue, the semiconductor problem. You know, uh, some of us may or may know, not know about the, the Taiwan miracle and all that. But, but that's a, that's an issue. We, we depend a lot on Taiwan for our chips, for our semiconductors. How do you fix that? How do you work that out? Well, yeah. So Taiwan
1: is not the only place in the world that you ultimately source semiconductors from, but they're dominant in a vast majority of, of semi inputs. Um, basically the, the foundries um, Taiwan semi is the world's largest semiconductor producer. They're, they're based in Taiwan, um, and um, semiconductors manufacturing is really interesting because it's super complicated. Um, it is sort of like doing um, extremely, extremely detailed surgery, like like neurosurgery, right? But doing it millions of times, and um, millions of times per chip, and you're producing chips at a scale that boggles the mind, like billions of chips, right? So millions of, of neurosurgeries across billions of chips is basically what you're doing. Um, And so getting everything set up to do that, right, not just the actual physical equipment and the the plant layout and the physical capital of a a factory, but also the human capital of managing all those processes, not just people working on the line, but people managing them, Um, people that are used to troubleshooting some of the problems that you have with this kind of highly complex process um getting all your input supplies ironed out where is that silicon coming from where are the other input metals coming from um and then also like your network of of customers right who are you shipping your chips to and and how how much do they rely on you there's the you know there's a lot that goes into this and um this is what economists call a a network effect right once you get this network you know in taiwan semi and, and taiwan as a whole are a good example of like you know, this network effect in action. Once you get that set up, it's really hard to dislodge it. You can, but it's expensive. Um, and so that, that is where industrial policy in other countries comes in. Um, the U.S. has started to focus on semis um, with funding from Congress um, and industrial policy initiatives to A, lure actual manufacturing of semis to the United States Um, and B, to defend the intellectual property. So like the research and and development of these things takes place and is controlled by the US for the most part. Um, so, you know, defending that, that intellectual property and um, expertise in design that the U.S. has while also trying to bring some of that physical manufacturing process back to the United States. And, you know, we're talking about tens of billions of dollars to do this um, and, you know, a, a decade plus process. This is not something you just flip on and off like a light switch. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's a tough problem. Um, the reason semiconductors have had so many issues with COVID is because a huge buyer of semiconductors is the auto manufacturing industry. And when COVID hit, all of the auto OEMs virtually just canceled their orders. And the chips that they typically use are not super sophisticated chips, but they can go into other stuff. So when all those orders got canceled because, oh, US recession, we're going to go to very low auto sales, quick cut production, cut production, cut expenses. It turns out, that's not what happened. Auto demand was actually really high. And so now all this demand comes back to the semiconductors uh, manufacturers. But those semis have now been sold. They've been sold to um, personal electronics manufacturers, um, other kinds of durable goods manufacturers, what have you. Um, maybe factories have been shut down and, and getting back into that, that sort of um, flow process before um, is really hard. Um, And we're still feeling ripple effects from that today. Um, So I think a good analogy for this is if you're driving along on the freeway at 75 miles an hour and there's a, there's a, all the lanes are full, but, you know, you got two car lengths and, you know, you're, everything's flowing good, flowing good, flowing good. Well, some Yahoo slams on the brakes in the, in the. Lane in front of you, you're going to slam on the brakes, which causes the person behind you to slam on the brakes and behind you back all the way. And before you know it, what was a very high speed, smooth flow of traffic down the freeway is a parking lot. It will sort itself out eventually, right? A new equilibrium will be established as everyone spaces back out and gets back up to speed again, but it takes a while. And that's what's going on in semis and and I think is going on in a lot of other areas as well right now and is, is one of the big reasons we're having so much inflation.
0: Well, that's interesting what you said about the semis and the auto manufacturers expecting something to happen based on kind of historic events. And then you wonder if they had just waited to see how things had played themselves out. We're not having this problem, which reminds me of the old adage, sometimes leadership is actually doing nothing and not a quick decision. And then you don't have the problem. And sometimes it actually takes more leadership to say, no, we're going to wait and see before we do something.
1: Yeah. And it's really understand I mean honestly I don't think anybody when when covid hit in in February of of you know I, I can remember seeing stories on the first week of January. That was when it was it first like first week of January 2020 it was like oh something's going on here. Like it's probably not as bad as it looks but it like something I need to start paying attention to this. And you know by early February it was clear okay this is this thing's going to be global. It's probably not going to kill everyone, but if it just runs wild, we're going to lose millions of people in the U S let alone the rest of the world. Um, and this is going to be bad. And then when those sort of state level, um, stay at home orders started rolling out when, you know, by, by that time, the decision had been made, you know, in Detroit and at a bunch of companies around the world in, in terms of how much they were going to produce, because they're never looking a week ahead. They're looking quarter year ahead. Right. And, you know, no one could have predicted that the A, the way the virus was gonna evolve. Um, we've gone from a completely novel virus that is just wrecking havoc on um, on most people, right? Like it's, it's a serious disease and it's killing mm. quite a lot of people. Um, to we have a fully effective vaccine And oh, yeah, by the way, the the virus has already mutated to something much less threatening, much more endemic in the space of two years. No one could have foreseen that. And no one could have foreseen how much policy stimulus we get. Congress coming in and effectively underwriting every small business in the country. That is just that was not a thing. Right. So. You know, I, I understand where where car manufacturers were coming from, because if, if the same, if the recession had played out, um, anything like it looked like it, w- it would in February and March and April of 2020, they would have looked like geniuses. They would have saved their investors billions of dollars. And, you know, I mean, it's tough. I you know like I as someone that forecasts um, and does financial markets for a living, I, this has been the most challenging two years of my career for sure. And it probably won't ever come close. Nothing else will come close because it's just been so hard to get it right.
0: Well, and I think the projections were somewhere around 25 to 30% unemployment. If, if the government didn't step in, I mean, it was, there were some really ominous signs up ahead that, you know, led to a lot of the actions that you were talking about, but I'd like to get your thoughts on We mentioned earlier uh, Russia invading Ukraine, so we're probably going to get targeted by hackers for mentioning this (laughs) Russia. But I, I believe in actually telling the truth. But I'd like to hear your thoughts on. I hate to use the term "the West" because that's what Putin tries to lump us all together and make us. You know, the West is the bad guy, but. I just want to get your thoughts on the response of the EU, the United States and the other countries as to the economic sanctions and really the economic warfare that's been applied in response to Russia's invasion.
1: Yeah, I actually wrote a piece for this at a think tank called the Atlantic Council. Um, we, we may be able to link it in the show notes or something like that. I'm not sure if you do that ever. But um, the, uh, the, the basic idea here is that the, the United States and to a lesser degree, but a non-trivial one, other countries like the European Union, the UK, Um, the next tier down would probably be your Switzerland, your Japan's, your Canada's, your Australia's. Um, These countries have a very high degree of control over how their currency is used. Um, If you want to hold a U.S. dollar bank account, ultimately every dollar that goes in and out of that bank account has to be processed through um, uh, American law and specifically New York state law. So um, that doesn't matter if you're a citizen of another country, if you're getting a payment from a citizen in another country whatever at some point that dollar is going through a u.s bank account uh, it's going through a, a process that's directly controlled by the u.s government and because the u.s dollar is so important for moving value across borders and for um facilitating trade around the world in commodities in all sorts of other products and services um it is just so important that the US can flip that switch. I mean, if if the US wants, they can say, okay, anybody in Russia is no longer allowed to transact in dollars. Of course they can't control cash, but cash isn't super helpful. Um, When you're talking about modern financialized and um, post-industrialized economies that are entirely reliant on very liquid, very fast moving financial markets for basic flows of goods to take place. it's a big stop button and the US has done a lot. Um, The US and the UK have been sort of the leaders on this. They've done a lot in terms of um, stopping the flow of transactions by Russian entities, but they could go a lot further. I mean, it it could go a lot further. It's so far the basics of what they've done is they've created lists of people that, lists of people in financial institutions, companies, um, including the Russian central bank who are no longer allowed to move assets along um, the payment rails in dollars in euros in pounds um, in one form or another, that's sort of how all three have, have approached this. Um, they could extend that to everybody in Russia. Um, I'm not sure if they will, but they could hypothetically. And so that means that if you're a Russian company trying to sell your oil to, um, let's say a Turkish uh, refinery, um, you're going to transact in dollars. You cannot find liquidity for the Turkish lira versus the Russian ruble. That's not a thing, right? Like you can't do that. That that, that FX pair just doesn't really trade. So you got to go through dollars. You go from rubles to dollars, and then dollars to lira or vice versa, whatever. And to do that, you got to go through a bank somewhere. And a lot of banks have just said, "Look, you know, we're not actually not allowed to. We're allowed to deal in, in an energy transaction. We're allowed to." facilitate this payment from this Turkish refinery to this Russian crude exporter, but we're just not going to do it. Um, Oh, and by the way, you can't insure the cargo when it leaves the port. So good luck getting it there on a ship. Um, So, you know, these... These flows uh, or the, the, this ability to turn the, the network of dollar payments on and off is just incredibly powerful for dictating economic activity. And over the long run, you can find ways around it um, You know, there, it, that you can substitute away. But in the short term, I mean, Russian GDP is going to be down 25, 30% in the first half of this year. Um, it's like another COVID shock, but the problem is there's not going to be a quick rebound. Um, it, it, there'll be a rebound, but it won't be very big. Um, and so they're, 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 uh, in deep trouble. Um, and I, am not sure that's sunk in in the Kremlin yet.
0: Well, I wonder if this is how we're going to see wars fought in the future as opposed to, Hopefully. to <laughs> right. Well, I mean, do <laughs> you think about it short of boots on the ground and, and you know drones and planes and naval ships and the submarines and all the stuff that involve human capital, right? All the, and I'm listing them one by one. You could go through all the, the old school ways of fighting wars, right? That involves human capital, right? Uh, with the exception of drones, which gotta have somebody to man it. I mean, it, it, do you think that this is how we're gonna really see the future of modern warfare? I mean, my hope is that countries that are feeling aggressive towards a smaller neighbor
1: will look at what has happened to Russia and say, we couldn't do that. Like, like we, we, we would not be able, our regime, our population, however you wanna frame it, whatever political construct is at work, we would not be able to survive that sort of shock to standards of living. And so, you know, if that's the cost you have to weigh against whatever benefits that might exist to going to war, um, you're gonna think real long and hard. And, you know, I think one of the reasons there was a war, um, there is a war in Ukraine. One of the reasons why Russia invaded Ukraine is because they thought that they had done enough to sanctions proof their economy. Um, I'm using scare quotes around sanctions proof. Um, They switched a lot of their international reserves into gold and other currencies. So they thought they could avoid um, the the U.S. dollar being um, restricted. They... um, Basically, thought that it was just going to be the U.S. doing what's going on, and the problem is it's not. It's as you said earlier, the West, which I, I agree that term is is sloppy because it includes countries like Japan, right? Um, and um, the the sort of developed democratic world has, in in lockstep with no real exceptions, um, said this is not going to fly with us, and in some economies, that's coming at great cost. Um, in in you know, you think inflation's bad here um in germany and in italy the energy dependence on russia means that it's rough and it could get a lot rougher Uh, russia hasn't really cut off flows of gas to germany yet um and and italy is also highly dependent um it 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 could get real bad um we're coming out of winter thankfully so i I don't think it'll be a question of life and death um but yeah it's 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 tough so um you know I, i i think if you balance the old way of fighting war and, and there haven't been a lot of nation state level conflicts since World War II, um, there've been a lot of civil wars and a lot of um, low-grade wars, but, but generally the, the world has tilted away from nation state level wars. But if you compare the sort of destruction that you're seeing in Ukraine right now, um, you know, shelters for children being in, targeted with um, artillery, uh, civilian corridors being bombed with cluster bombs. Um, you know, that sort of cost um, compared to Russians not being able to buy an iPhone, um, you know, having their basic caloric needs met, but otherwise not really being able to have the standard of living they enjoyed before. And I think that's a pretty... <laughs> I think that's a pretty reasonable trade-off to make. Um, and you know, it's unfortunate that the Russian people are caught in the crossfire to a degree. Um, but, um, at the same time, the, the incentive, the disincentives and the problems that are created by these sanctions are, are very significant if they're from the entire developed democratic world at the same
0: time. Well, and if, if the sanctions are as effective as they appear to have been so far, it's going to get very difficult for Russia to continue to fight in Ukraine. And let's say they, they take Ukraine, they're going to run into the same. It looks like problem they had in Afghanistan with the Soviet union where they sort of took it, but they couldn't maintain it. Right. Yeah.
1: I mean, you know, I'm not a military analyst, but I'm following this stuff really closely. Um, I will be surprised if they can continue doing anything other than sitting in in their current lines past the next week or so here. Um, They, so one of the um, sort of fields that that studies warfare these days is called open source intelligence. So this is people that take publicly available data and try and understand what's going on battlefields with it. Sounds like it's kind of, you know, wild hair, you know, make it up type stuff, but some of these analysts have documented hundreds of Russian tanks destroyed. Each individual one documented separately. You can look at the photos, it's all very transparent. So by my math, you know, 120 battalion tactical groups, um, you know, roughly 10 tanks per BTG, company of tanks, 10 tank tanks per BTG. Um, and with over 200 tanks destroyed since the invasion, they've gone through like roughly 20% of the best case scenario for the number of tanks they've had on, on hand. They haven't even taken Kiev yet. Uh, they haven't taken Kharkiv, which is literally on the border with Russia. Um, Mariupol, which is where they've had their biggest successes in the southeast, is holding out after you know over a week, on, coming up on two weeks of intensive siege. I, how, how can they continue to do this? And that's before factoring in that they can't get the microchips they need to build more cruise missiles. You know, they can't get the high end. Um, Aeronautic components that go into MiGs, right? Like, where are they going to come up with the resources to continue fighting this war when they're suffering the kind of attrition they are? So, hopefully, Putin comes to his um, senses sooner rather than later and and pulls out. But um, in the meantime, you know, every day he doesn't, more Ukrainians die and more totally innocent Ukrainians die. Um, Not just not just people who are putting on their the colors of their country to defend their homes, but, you know, children, elderly people, cancer patients like it's just it's horrifying. So um, knock on wood that it ends as soon as possible.
0: What kind of countermeasures do you think can be taken by Russia against the U.S.? And again, I'm going to use that sloppy term, the Western air quotes. So. In the short term,
1: nothing. (laughs) They thought they had taken countermeasures by um, reducing reliance on dollars and reducing reliance on, you know, switching to gold with international reserves, building up a lot of international reserves, that sort of thing. Um, But like there are physical flows that they are reliant on for their export sales. Um, There are physical flows that they're reliant on for key components in their economy. 20% of their imports are machinery, right? Of one kind of electronics industrial machinery, that sort of stuff. Um, they don't really, I mean, they produce some of it domestically, but nothing like what they need to replicate the of the menu of products and services that were available before the, the invasion. So in the short term, nothing. The, in the long term, um, trade with China, like barter trade essentially with China, where they're sending oil and coal and natural gas and minerals to China in exchange for manufactured products, that's a viable solution, but that's going to take a really long time. And we're talking not months, but years and years um, for that to get to the same point that it was um, before the um, invasion. And, you know, even then it's not going to be quite the same thing. It's going to be, it's going to be a substandard set of not, not because Chinese goods are bad, but just because China doesn't produce all the stuff that Russia needs from the West to maintain, you know, the, the, the economic activity it had before the invasion. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's, there's no good options. I mean, straight up it's, it's, they're, they're up a Creek.
0: So I guess to stick with kind of analogies that dumb it down, it's like when you leave your girlfriend and you're like, she's going to need me and then she's fine, but you're the one in trouble. Right. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um,
1: I think what's a good analogy here. It's like, if you have a really big, complicated, complicated jigsaw puzzle, and you take half the pieces and you throw them in the trash, can you still do the puzzle? Well, hypothetically, yeah. You can cut the cardboard to the right size. You can get the picture of the puzzle and print it on the pieces of paper and you can do it eventually, but it's gonna take a long time. It's gonna be real hard. And you're gonna you're gonna not be working during that time. You're gonna not be spending time with your kids. You're you're gonna be siloed trying to get this thing put back together and it's it's gonna be tough. So yeah, I mean that that's kind of the analogy.
0: All right. So just it, it seems like what happened here was that. Russia thought there was going to be a real quick, easy war that they'd be able to get over and done with real quick, which anybody who studies history knows. I don't think there is with I think it's like nine times out of 10, the predictions of quick, fast wars are wrong. They turn down. They turn out to be long, drawn out fights. So if you're ever in a position of power and someone is promising you that a war will be over quickly, fire that person and go talk to somebody else. Um, but it's it's interesting though to watch this economic development and market development of the response to what's happened in ukraine as a result of russia's aggression again i don't care what tulsi gabbers says that's what happened um <laughs> but i'm just curious and and then we'll switch to football but I would like to to know your thoughts about our companies are, are again, air quotes, Western companies going to go back to Russia when this shakes out, when it's done. Do you think we're going to see like Coca-Cola go back there? I mean, what's going to happen? Well,
1: um, just before I I answer that, I would point out um, the the quote, you know, the the phrase, a short victorious war um, was actually something a Russian said about the Russo-Japanese War in 1904. Um, and yeah, so history, history doesn't, doesn't rhyme or doesn't repeat, but it, it really rhymes sometimes. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, as far as Western companies, I mean, that's, that's, that really gets to the nut of it, right. In terms of that, that ability to, um, produce at the level you were before, um, BP is a really good example. They had a huge, like 20 plus billion dollar on their balance sheet, um, joint venture, with a Russian, uh, Russian gas company or a Russian, yeah Russian oil company. Sorry. Um, and they just said, we're pulling out, we're writing our, we're not gonna sell it. We're just gonna write it to zero. We're just gonna assume it's worth nothing. We're just stopping all engagement. The loss of technical expertise of access to to suppliers, of project management, of, you know, geological engineering and, and all that stuff. I mean, that oil fields are not something where you stick a pipe in the ground and just comes out indefinitely. You got to work to maintain them. They take a lot of maintenance capex and that's gone from that joint venture, right? Like, like the, the Western expertise to do that efficiently is gone. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a bunch of other examples as well. And so, yeah, I, 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 even if BP wanted to go back tomorrow, it's going to look really different. You know, I, and, and I have a really hard time seeing given the cost that some of these companies have accrued again, in the BP case, it's like more than $20 billion. It cost them to pull out. It was like a quarter of their market cap. Um, given the magnitude of that decision, you are not going right back in. You're not just going, okay, now we'll go back. In. No, that's not how that works. Right. Um, hundreds of aircraft right now, for instance, in Russia are, um, being, or are impounded, essentially. Um, they're owned by leasing companies around the world. Um, air cap is the biggest one They're They're headquartered in Ireland, traded in the U S. Um, but you know, they've got all these airplanes that Russia has just to know. You can't take those out because they don't have access to parts. So they're gonna have to cannibalize flight planes to keep any domestic plane service flying. Well, if you're leasing an air, or if you're insuring an aircraft, and you know, or you're lease, or you own an aircraft, how eager are you going to be to let that land in Russia anytime in the foreseeable future? Probably not super stoked about it, to be honest. So, you know, I I, I think. These, these ties are slowly built um, and they, they, they're they compounding. So once you get, you know, they, they grow at faster rates over time, they're exponential, but when you break them, you go back to zero, right? Or if not zero, then something like it. And the, 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 the eagerness to get right back into it is going to be very low in my opinion. And, it, you know, eventually they might if we see a return to democracy in Russia. Um, if we see a totally different foreign policy from Russia, if we see an actual effort to engage with, um, you know, their neighbors and their trading partners in a, in a constructive way, then anything can happen. But in the short term, there's just no reason to think that's going to happen anytime soon. So that's that.
0: All right. Let's let's talk about football. You grew up in Canada. You have a, a very famous, uh, ancestor, if you'd like to just tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So my great grandfather, a guy named George R. Perks, uh, he was, uh, basically a pioneer, uh, early 19th century homesteader in Alberta. The great war broke out and George R. Headed off to Europe. Uh, he ended up, um, winning the Victoria cross, which was the, which is the equivalent in the British empire of, of, um, the congressional medal of honor. So, Peak, or peak military honor you can you can earn. Uh, he took shrapnel in the leg and kept on ticking in, in Passchendaele in Belgium, um, which was a particularly muddy and awful battle. Uh, he held a, a key strong point um, against a bunch of waves of enemy, enemy attack while injured. Um, ended up going into politics after he came back. Took a took a spin through the Mounties and then went into politics and or sorry took took a spin through the Mounties and then went back. To um, military service. By World War II, the start of World War II, when it broke out in Europe, he was commander in chief of Canadian forces in Europe. They rotated him out to the West Coast because they thought that the Japanese were about to invade. And so he was in charge of West Coast defense um, in, um, during the most of World War II. Um, he then went into politics, got elected to parliament, um, and ended up being the minister of defense under uh, Diefenbaker's government in the 1950s. And um, yeah, that 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 was his career. He spent the later part of his career in a ceremonial position, um, called the Lieutenant governor, um, that exists in Canada. It's, there isn't an analogous one in the United States. Um, but, um, Queens representative in British Columbia is, was, is literally what it was. Um, and so, yeah, um, I grew up in British Columbia, a small town called Nelson played a what group. My dad went to college in the States, Love watching the cowboys love watching football american football in general thought cfl was trash and so i grew up thinking that <laughs> cfl was trash <laughs> and i mean you know i can appreciate what cfl offers but it's not for me i don't think and uh, the strategy certainly in the in the american football both at the collegiate and uh, professional level is another another thing entirely anyhow i so i i grew up watching football on dad's knee and um, you know i can remember being in early part of high school or middle of high school and watching that uh, Tostitos Fiesta Bowl where Boise State took down Oklahoma and just thinking like, man, I got to get me some of this. <laughs> I got to be involved in this. So I uh, I got into Duke back in 2000 and spring of 2008, got an early decision, called up the football program and said, hey, um, I, got, I just got accepted to Duke. I want to walk onto the team. And this was at the time when cut had just been hired. So this is, you know, he, I, I probably called within weeks of him being hired and I didn't even really know anything about all that. I just called the football program and I I called the tight ends coach and (laughs) Googled the tight ends coach and said, I want to walk on as a tight end. And they said, okay, we'll get back to you. A couple of weeks later, they got back to me and said, all right, if you can, show up for training camp and make it through training camp. You got a spot on the team. Um, the Duke walk-on program now to my understanding is very different from where it was when I played. Um, but when I was there, they could not attract enough bodies, right? Like they needed a- anybody that wanted to play as long as they weren't going to get themselves hurt. Like if they, as long as they were physically fit enough to you know not get hurt in practice, they were good to go. Um, and that was me. Um, so yeah, that, that's how I became a Duke football player. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, so I was, I'm scratching out my questions about Canadian football culture uh, based on your prior uh, statement. I take it. You don't have a CFL team that you keep tabs on. You know, I don't keep tabs on them, but I've got a weak spot
1: for the Hamilton Tiger cats because when I graduated, they sent me a letter asking me if I wanted to try out. Now, I didn't do it because, well, first off, I wouldn't have made a team. Yeah. (laughs) Here's the thing about the CFL. The CFL has to have a minimum number of Canadian players on each team. So my theory is the reason I got a letter is that they just went through and sent uh, a letter to literally everybody that was listed as being from Canada on a D1 team. That was a senior. I'm pretty sure that's what happened. Um, Didn't, didn't, didn't end up wanting to spend much time in Hamilton and That's the end of that. But it was fun to get the letter.
0: (laughs) Well, I would say listeners of the podcast know from our most recent interview uh, with um, Trey Hornbuckle, we know about the uh, Canadian ratio rule there. So and I assume that you also have listened to that in preparation for today and are aware that we all know about that, uh, uh, too. But, man, you should have done that. That would have been awesome. I had a job waiting for me in Manhattan. Okay.
1: All right. I, I was like, you know, nah, I'm good. Yeah. But, um, you know, Chris Rabacombo went up there. He was a contemporary of mine. He was probably a year or two older than me. Um, but he, w- he ended up playing for the Tiger Cats for – he wasn't from Canada, but he ended up playing for them for a while. I don't know if you've had him on, um, but he would be a great guest. He's an awesome guy. Um, a couple other guys I played with ended up spending time. I think Thad Lewis was up there for a little bit. Um, probably a couple other people too, maybe A.B. Cromwell. Um, not sure, but um, yeah, it's, I mean, you know, CFL is cool. It's, you know, I don't want to be too harsh, but just, it, it just wasn't for me. I was at that point after four years being a walk-on and essentially a tackling dummy, right? Like I, I had had enough of football. It was an incredible experience. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done it in any different way, but um,
0: it was, it was time to move on. Well, <laughs> The job in Manhattan goes a long way to your decision-making process, right? If that wasn't there, then maybe you're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go try out for this team. But I I get it. I get it.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it was good. I mean, you know, football is um, football at the collegiate level and certainly in the program that Cut ran. I mean, I, I can't speak for every program, but having been through his his program, it is an incredibly intensive experience. I mean, the only thing I have ever come across and I've never served in the military, but the only thing I can sort of liken it to, and based on what I understand of it, is the military, um, just incredibly regimented. You have to be here at this time and on this date, you don't have a choice. You're then going to be in physical danger, right? And football's a dangerous sport. They did a good job protecting us. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying they were, they were abusing us or anything like that, but at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's a, it's a contact sport right? So it's physically dangerous. You've got this intense, um, really brotherhood with the people that you're going through this with and not just, you know, you've got, you've got sort of the, 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 um, same system of, of, enlisted people and ncos right like like team captains or team leaders um, graduate students too as well you've got your officers who are the coaches you've got a big general up at the top calling all the shots right so you know it's it's very hierarchical um you got a whole physical and infrastructure around you've got a uniform you've got you know your 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 um food is provided through this this system Your I don't know. It's just, it's very, it, it's very intense. And it's very, I think it's very constructive for young men. I found it very constructive for myself and I saw a lot of people benefit from it. Um, but after four years of that, it's like, okay. <laughs> That's we're good here.
0: <laughs> well, tell tell us a little bit about, you were there for the very beginning of the Cutcliff era, which I've referred to at the site as the rebuilding and renovation era era can you walk us through kind of what the mood was like coming into that first season under cut? Cause I mean, they had been really bad for a really long time.
1: I think they won one game in like two or three years before I, like before that 2008 season, if I remember correctly, we we don't need to
0: remember that. We do, We'll just say, <laughs> we, we don't need to, we don't need to get into that. We'll just say that they were bad. So yeah. Okay. But yeah.
1: And then, so, you know, cut comes in and, and, he is just
0: an incredibly
1: competent, serious man. Right. Um, I think almost sometimes there were times in meetings where it was like, okay, you're, 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 doing this a little, you're doing a little much haircut. Um, you know, it almost took it to, to an excess in certain circumstances, but, you know, regardless of the affect, he was very serious about what he was trying to do. Um, he had a plan. He had a way he wanted to do it. He had a um, culture he tried to instill in people. And I, I mean, I think he was very successful in it while I was there in terms of just setting expectations and demanding a certain level of of performance. Um, you know, the the team when I first got there was a really interesting mix of guys who had been recruited by under Ted roof, who were actually pretty physically accomplished. Um, Thad Lewis is a great example. Vince Ogabasi, who was a five-star, I think DT um, when he was in high school, <clears throat> I can remember lining up against him. One of my first snaps on the field in practice. I mean, it's just practice. He's not trying to kill me, but it's like, Oh man. Okay. This is different. Like this is not, these dudes are on a different level. I'm, I'm not a bad athlete, but this is just, I'm never going to be one of these guys, you know? Um, So anyhow, I think, you know, then he had some guys mixed in that were just oddballs, right? Like there was one guy and I'm not going to say who it was because it's kind of mean, but he was recruited under roof because they got his name mixed up with somebody else. And so, you know, he was on the team and he contributed. And and, you know, this is not not some guy. Every everyone had a role to play. But you know, that's kind of the the variation that 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 Cut was working with, and getting guys to buy in and care, and getting guys to understand that like, if you do this the right way, then then it will come. Right, the good stuff will come, whether it's it'll come in the next practice. It'll come in the next game. It'll come in the next season, whatever it is like that. We have a system and we're going to work it and it's going to work. If you buy in, um, getting those, getting guys to connect those dots was I think a big challenge. And I, I, you know, there were certainly a number of guys who got shipped out essentially, like not, Oh, you don't have a scholarship anymore, but just like, you are not going to be what you think you are on this team. We need to we need space. So take an injury scholarship, transfer, whatever, um, you know, this is not a good spot for you. Um, and you know, that's, that's tough. Um, but it took a, you know, I I think by the time I was a junior, there was a huge amount of buy-in from guys. And, you know, there were guys who had been there under, under the system for three, four years. And, you know, you saw, um, some of the, the, the product of that, um, whether it was going and playing Johnny football down in the, down in Atlanta and the Georgia dome for the peach bowl in what 2012, I think that was 2013, 2013. Thank you. Um, Sean Renfries, um, you know, superlative performance, um, you know, late in his career, um, you know, that sort of stuff, it started to click and, you know, it's just, it just, they, they never got it over the hill to where it was going from that three to five win team to like a seven to eight win team every season. And it's hard, it's competitive. It was never a guaranteed thing, but, um, you know, that first going from that first set of meetings that I wasn't in, cause I was still in high school, but I came in later that year to start my freshman fall. And, you know, hearing some of the stories of like, wow, from guys who had been under roof and seeing what cut was trying to do wow, this is real different. This is a very serious thing now, not some not some goofball up there.
0: So then it took some time and you had two seasons that were big improvements upon where Duke had been. Your first season, four and eight, second season, five and seven, and hovering right around the bowl game. What were those two seasons like? And then compare that to then the next two seasons, the three and nine seasons.
1: So I think that first season, the thing I'm always going to remember that sort of like what it's like to be underestimated. Um, we Thad got hurt. Thad Lewis is our starting quarterback. He got hurt. And there wasn't a ton of confidence that the backup quarterback, and I'm not going to use a name. If people want to Google it, they can Google it, but I'm not going to use a name. Um, there wasn't a ton of confidence in the throwing arm of the backup quarterback, but the backup quarterback, was a pretty damn fine athlete on his feet and, um, he could take a hit or two. So in the space of a week, the entire offense was thrown for the week in the trash can and they installed a triple option scheme from nothing. We, we played, I think four triple option teams that year. It was army Navy Georgia tech. And then I think it was at least three and maybe one, one more. So a lot of the guys on the team and on the staff had been, were were comfortable with this triple option scheme um, at least in theory. And so they designed it straight from the ground up, whole new offense, whole new scheme went into Blacksburg. I didn't travel for that. I traveled very rarely. Um, And actually I got a good story about traveling, Um, you know, going, traveling with the team. Again, I was a walk-on. I was not high on the depth chart ever. Um, And so I didn't travel with the team most of my career, but they went up to Blacksburg and it's a freezing cold winter night and, you know, enter Sandman's blaring and those crazy turkeys are going crazy. And, you know, they held them to one touchdown and one field goal, if memory serves uh, we scored a field goal and there were probably three or four plays that should have gone for touchdowns because they had never seen this offense before. And so, you know, that kind of scrappy, like do whatever it takes, get creative, you know, ride and, you know, just, just drive it home and just do whatever we can to break out of the cycle. I think that's how the first two seasons felt. And then those later two seasons, it's like, okay, like, you know, we, we, can, we can be competitive with just about anybody we want. So let's go out and get this, get this thing done. And then it just not being there. It just, you know, being a few a few snaps short in competitive in every game and just a ball breaking the wrong way, you know, something going wrong and not being able to get it done. And it's just frustrating, you know, a couple of years after ended up, you know, playing in a premier bowl game. And, and, and that was I think the really the high watermark
0: for the program. All right. So one couple things that I want to, mentioned, you said the backup quarterback could take a hit and boy did he against Virginia Tech. Uh, those who have w- watched Blue Devils football for a long time know who you're talking about and know the, the hits he took in that game. But you said you had a good story about traveling. I don't know if it's going to require an explicit rating on the podcast. Or if it's Oh, no, 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 no,
1: no. Actually, I think it speaks a lot to what Cut was like in terms of instilling that culture. So every year there's an event at Wallace Wade where the freshman class comes to meet the blue devils, right. And they meet the the football players. It's a sort of like a pep rally. It, you know, there's free pizza and they sit in the stands and you know, whatever. And so after that um, you know, the, the football freshmen were, we were still in training camp, but we were living in dorms at that point. It was after the the hotel you live in for the first few weeks training camp. And um, there was a, there was a, a, you know, group of us milling around. And I noticed that a bunch of the freshmen had left the, their pizza plates and pot, you know, soda uh, cups and whatever in the stands. So I just start um, uh, picking up trash. And another one of the scholarship guys, in the, you know, and I both started doing this. I don't know if we did it at the same time or one of us, it was one of our ideas or whatever, but we both started doing it. We And everybody else is just kind of jawing, talking to girls or doing whatever their thing, you know whatever and we're picking up trash and there i think there were there were custodial people there to do that as well but you know we we just checked in and so i was i guess a friday night or a thursday night or something like that and we practiced the next morning and at the end of practice uh uh coach cut we you know we did do a little announcements and stuff at the end of practice every day and coach cut says uh all right curtis hazelson george perks you stand up and i go oh what did i do what did i why does he even know my name (laughs) this is bad this can't be good and he said uh you know i was sitting up in my office in the yo in the the yo uh football building uh after y'all had your little freshman event and i i looked out and i noticed that that curtis and george were picking up trash after all those little freshmen that were out meeting the blue devils and that is exactly the kind of thing we want in this program it's your house you clean it up and you take pride in this program. And so because of that, the two of y'all are going to get to travel um, to our next game. And so, or maybe it wasn't the next game, but it was a game that season, I think. Um, And so one of the games I was never going to play, I was, I didn't have the skills. I didn't have the athleticism to, to take a snap, but I went with the team down to Georgia tech and that, you know, seeing, I had never seen a convoy, of buses coming from the charter flight to the hotel with a state trooper, you know, leading the way and all that. And, you know, coming from a small town in Canada and, you know, seeing all that, it was like, wow, this is, this is wild. And, you know, the reason I I got to see that is because Cut really wanted to reinforce that, like, if you do the right thing, good stuff will happen for you. Um, And so I think, you know, I think that's a good example of, of how that was.
0: Well, that's a great story, and I want to turn to the one thing that you said about the last two seasons. There were so many close losses. Looking at uh, 2010, lost by six to Wake Forest in a shootout, lost by five to Maryland, which I despise Maryland. I won't even get into that right now. Um, Hopefully everybody who listens to this podcast does, but you lost by five to Boston College and five to – North Carolina, you know, one play in each game goes a different way. It's a very different season. And similar in 2011, there were just a ton of close losses that we've detailed previously with with other guests. So your, your career ends, your time at Duke ends. What was kind of the mindset, if you can comment on it, for the team going into next season? And I know you weren't there for it, but what were the guys who were coming back thinking about what maybe they could do? I think by the time I
1: was leaving you at that point had guys who were entering their fifth season with coach cut. Right. And who, you know, Sean Renfrey is a great example of this. Jeff Ferris is another good example. Uh, He's, you know, has had now a pretty impressive coaching career um, up to this point through both Duke. And I can't remember where he's at now, but he's continued to coach. Um, He's the offensive coordinator somewhere, if I remember correctly. Um, But, you know, those kind of guys who had, who had been out there and and been drinking in the, the, the cut mindset, not, not just the, the attitude and, you know, doing the work, but also um, the system and, you know, understanding how, um, how the, the system worked. Um, And so that, you know, compare that to guys who were recruited by a different coach and are having to adjust to an entirely new way of looking at the game, um, you know, in their third, fourth year uh, when cut first came in like that, that's a big difference, right. That that sort of confidence and that sort of um, familiarity with how everything works. Um, I think, I think that that is the big thing that would have distinguished that that year. Um, and obviously that builds right. By the time my second or third season, that was starting to become evident a fourth season for sure. But, you know, by the time that fifth year and that fifth year, everybody who's there pretty much is a a cut recruit, right? Like everyone's come with that cut mindset. Um, And, you know, I, I say cut recruit cut mindset. Um, There was an amazing staff of uh, really talented coaches um, other than coach cut, Um, you know, guy like Ron Middleton, who's now an NFL coach and has been for quite some time. He was my position coach and, you know, just a fantastic leader of young men and just, really knows the game to an incredible degree, knows every single angle, where, where every angle needs to be on every block and knows every technique and every trick and knows everything top to bottom. Um, so, you know, um, there were, there were a number of coaches like that, um, that, um, that mindset and that, that sort of, um, familiarity with the system, I think really set up a lot of guys for success. And, you know, it took one more year before that real, what should have, should have been, or I wish had been like a breakthrough season that, that set the tempo for the the team and was repeated again and again, it didn't end up working out that way, but that, that 2013 season was still pretty special.
0: All right, so watching those those seasons, the bowl games after you left, the success that the program reached, you know, the draft picks who went in the NFL as a former player, how did that make you feel observing that?
1: Oh, just so happy for the guys that that got the chance to play professionally, for those that wanted to. Um, you know, I mentioned Chris Robacomo playing in, in the CFL, but, you know, Laken Tomlinson, who was... I believe a year behind me, maybe two years behind me. Uh, he just signed with the Jets. He's had an amazing career. Uh, Lucas Patrick, um, he was another guy, similar age. He plays for uh, Green Bay and has done a great job. You know, there's a long list of guys. Those are just two off the top of my head. Obviously there's, there's a long list of other guys who have had pretty successful NFL careers. Um, and, you know, as, as the team success, I mean, some of the guys catching touchdowns or, 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 you know, making blocks or making tackles or being in the right gap. Like, you know, I helped them get to the point where, where they were doing that. You know, I played a small role in that. It's not like I like coached them or anything, but you know, I was, one of the people who was in the weight room working hard or running sprints hard, even though I wasn't getting a scholarship to be there and like motivating them. And I was giving them looks and practice and all that stuff. So, you know, that first couple of seasons out, like I felt a ton of ownership over, over what had happened. Um, not, not possessiveness, but you know, I, I felt like I had played a role in building that for sure. Um, and, you know, obviously over time that, that feeling has faded a bit, but, but you know, the, on, on a personal level, but the, the The gratification from Duke winning a close game is is a lot a lot stronger, I think, than than just about anything else. And you know, the basketball team's great, you know, good for them, but it's it's different when it's the football team in for me.
0: And Lucas Patrick just uh, signed with the Bears, so I'm sure there's a ton of Green Bay fans who are burning jerseys right now uh, since he went to the rival. But <laughs> On, on that thought i'm just curious uh, on that note rather uh, coach cutcliffe's time came to an end we've covered that extensively we've we've talked a lot about that at the site what are your thoughts on coach elko and what he's doing
1: you know i i don't know anybody that's still super close to the program. Um, at this point, you know, all the guys have aged out, even like I said, Jeff Ferris was my year. Um, but he obviously left with the coach cut, um, transition. Um, and you know, I, I, I don't have a, any insider read on coach Elko. Um, I certainly can't say anything negative that I've, that I've heard or anything like that. I think it's really, really hard ahead of time to prejudge how a given coach is going to be. I think whether it's just hype and, you know, fans being excited as they're, you know, totally understandable to be, um, with a change, um, or, um, you know, the, the athletic department doing their job and marketing things. Well, um, whatever, whatever that the case may be, there's always a lot of excitement with a new coach and you just really don't know until you see the, the product on the field. So, um, you know, I can't really offer any sort of, um, you know, super strong vote of confidence or critique of any kind either. Um, But what I would say is that, you know, I hope Coach Elko does real well with the guys. And, um, you know, I I think he's got a lot of support behind him, both from fans and, you know, from the university. And, um, you know, hopefully he's one of the the college coaches that that gets handed the keys to the, to the, to the truck and and lets her rip. And I'd love to see that. and, And hopefully that's what we'll see this season.
0: Yeah, I think he's done all the right things since he's come in. I think he's trying to engage with the program. I mean, as someone who's followed the the team for a long time now, football was an afterthought at Duke for a long time, and they paid the price for that. But he seems very invested. He's doing all the right things. But I will say, as I've said before, and I'll say it again now, one, we need to be patient, and two – We need to see what happens when he gets on the field. I like the staff that he's put together. It looks like they're recruiting very hard, and hopefully they'll be able to take what's there and put a real competitive good product on on the field because I think that's what we want to see. And until now, he's done everything right. Let's just hope it continues come uh, September and come the games. Um, What's one thing – two other things that I want to cover with you. First, what – Could we as fans know about what athletes are going through that would help us be better fans? We saw a member of the program step away recently and medically retire. You've been around guys there for four years. What what should we know to be better fans?
1: I think just keep in mind, like regardless of the facts of a given situation, which fans are never privy to, you're never privy to all the facts like straight up, you're not going to be, you can be well-informed by what's out there publicly, um, but you're never going to have the whole story regardless of what the real story is, what the story that you can see or can, um, you know, perceive is just remember that like the person on the other side of whatever judgment, good or ill that you're passing, um, whether it's a coach, whether it's, um, a a player, whether it's someone in the athletic department, whoever, you know, like that's a human being and they're just trying to do the best in the situation they're in. And, you know, especially for, a, a. late teens early 20s young person right um there is all kinds of stuff that can be going on in their life that you have no idea how bad or how good i mean this is not just about like oh fans need to be nice to players or or something like that It's, it's it's it cuts both ways um you you just don't know how bad or good it could be for somebody and so you just need to be really careful about um about objectifying i guess like a player for good or for ill either way um they're human beings who are are just trying to make their way in the world and you know um all sorts of stuff goes on. I, I personally, um, compared to where things were when I was there, Duke was great with concussion protocols and, and I always felt like my safety wasn't at grave risk or unnecessary risk while I was a player, but I will say the sport as a whole has come a long way in terms of understanding the risks that players are at, um, with regards to head injuries and understanding, um, the, um, Times that sometimes people just got to step back. Right. Um, and so I, I am really happy to see that um, in the sport and, and see that as a step to supporting players become better people and um, become, you know, safer in their endeavors.
0: Last thing. Well, as an attorney, I should never say that. So apologies if this isn't the last thing, but intended last topic Uh, what are you most proud of about your time at Duke that I made it through four years as a walk-on at a d1 school having played like
1: scrub Canadian like nine-man football before that like I mentioned Curtis Hazleton earlier who was one of the was the other player who helped me clean up after the freshman event the one time and you know he said when I was I think we were coming off the field in September October of my junior year and said you know perks man let me be real honest with you nobody thought you'd be around for more than a couple weeks you had nobody the pool was not looking good for you man like the the, the over under was real low and you're here you're you're here like everybody else you're working your ass off good on you and you know um, that was like, that was a lot, um, going through college, not being able to work a side job for beer money, um, you know, not being able to dedicate as much time to scholastic endeavors I otherwise would have, um, you know, having social life crimps, all that stuff, um, you know, and not getting a scholarship for it. And I still made it through and it was a, don't get me wrong. Um, it was, I, I got as much out of it in terms of my personal development and my experience of the world as i put into it, I think, if not a lot more, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm proud of myself for that. I'm not going to lie. I think that's one of the more, more, um, solid achievements in my life. And, um, you know, I, I, I made the decision my freshman year. I thought I was going to come in and be Rudy. And it was very, very clear, very quickly. That was not going to be how it worked. Right. I was never going to be the guy working my way up the depth chart, earning a scholarship or anything like that. But, um, that didn't mean that I couldn't get something really positive out of the experience and contribute my own way and contribute in a way that the team needed. Um, and so, you know, making that decision freshman year like yeah I'm not I'm never going to beat the guy and that's fine I can still play a role and still contribute still get a lot out of this experience um I, I I'll give myself a pat on the back my 18 year old self a pat on the back for that um because it was a really good decision and it, it it's it's made my life a lot better
0: well that's great and George we thank you for taking time out of this uh Thursday evening to come on and do this interview and for any of you out there who are listening, who are associated with the program in any way, past, present, or future, you know how to get in touch with me, Bull City at gmail.com. My DMs are open on Twitter at Duke FB Coverage. Go to our website, Bull We're always happy to talk Duke football. And we are working on lining up a few more guests. Got one into April, working on one in May trying to line a few things up and then my summer gets uh, unfortunately a little brutal, but we're going to keep working on setting these up. We thank you for continuing to listen. Go Duke.